Well, I'm sure every one of you have heard the saying, I bit off more than I could chew. I felt a lot like that this week as I prepared to continue our series this summer called Unsung Heroes. In case you haven't been with us, just a little reminder, in this series we are redefining who a hero is in God's eyes. And what we're discovering is that heroes aren't necessarily the most well-known people. Most often, in fact, heroes are simply ordinary people who responded by faith to an extraordinary God, to some call in their life. So whether that call was to join God in his work in this world, like Ananias, to join God by being faithful, even in difficulties like Hosea, to join God by being a faithful friend to uh, David like Jonathan was. Or last week we talked about how we can join God by speaking the truth in love to one another like Nathan did with David. What we're discovering is that when we take on those kind of traits and characteristics as a church, we too can live heroically. Now this morning I want to look at another one of our heroes for this series. And i got to say, he's probably not as unsung as some of the other characters we're going to be looking at. After all, there is an entire book of the Bible named after him. However... I have chosen to include Job in this series because the truth is that sometimes Job gets ignored. Because, let's just be honest, his story is a very hard story. In fact, if you're following on your notes with me this morning, that's because Job's story is one of tremendous suffering. And if I can just at least speak for myself right now, I don't like to dwell on suffering. I don't like to think about it. In fact, I would argue that we have created a culture uh, where we want to ignore this subject, right? Out of fear. Or out of, I just don't even want to be thinking about that. However, what has happened is we then ignore books like Job. But as you all know in this room, there is probably nothing more certain about life than the fact that you and I will suffer. Suffering can come in many different ways, disease, death, disappointment, persecution, broken relationships, just to name a few. Suffering is a part of life. And so listen, instead of ignoring it or pushing it over there, every once in a while I think it's good for us to gain God's perspective on it to get wisdom from him and his word. And if you don't already know, he actually speaks about this hundreds of times in the Bible. And he even devoted an entire book of the Bible to this subject. It's the book of Job. So I want to talk about that with you this morning. But here's the thing. There is no way possible that I could cover 42 chapters in one message. Nor is there any way humanly possible that I could address every area of suffering that not only needs to be addressed, but could be addressed this morning. Nor could I address every why question that is sure to arise in one grace. So here's what I'm asking for you. I'm asking for your grace. I'm asking for your patience as I attempt to simply take, to the best of my ability, one slice of this mysterious pie we call suffering. So, I got to tell you, we're in good hands because there is no book in the entire world, let alone in the Bible, that speaks with the kind of intellectual integrity, the kind of spiritual wisdom, and the kind of emotional honesty that the book of Job does. 
In fact, Victor Hugo, who, you know, wrote Les Miserables, once said, Tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I would save Job. Wow. He's on to something. So take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Job, chapter 1. We're only going to have time this morning, like I said, to cover one chapter of this book, Job chapter 1. If you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, you can take, uh, take it about middle. There's this big book called Psalms. And just turn to the left until you come to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. And if you don't have your own Bible uh, with you this morning, we always encourage you to take one of the ones in the seat back in front of you. And you can find this on page 350. Now, we've prayed three times already this morning. Would it be okay if we did it a fourth? Let's pray. Lord, we have got to look to you with a subject like this. I do not have the wisdom or the capability or the ability to minister to the amount of people in this room who are going through different measures of suffering. But we trust that you can. We thank you that you've written about it and that you're honest about it. And as we look at this marvelous book called Job, we give our time over to you In Jesus' name, amen. Job 1, you ready? Book of Job starts this way. In the land of Uz, there there lived a man whose name was Job. We're told that this story starts in the land of Uz. We discover a little bit later that Uz was in the east. And of course, the question is, east of what? Well, where did the people of Israel live? It's not a trick question. Where did the people of Israel live? Israel. Good. You're on top of it. So the point of this is, this did not happen in Israel. And what I want to say to you, that's significant. That means this isn't just a story for the people of Israel. This is a story for all humanity. This is a story for all of us. Read the rest of verse 1 out loud with me on your notes. Job was blameless and upright He feared God and shunned evil. Now, when I read someone was blameless and upright, and you see that description of different people in the Bible, my first thought is to think, well, they were sinless. Is that what the Bible's saying? Of course it's not saying that. It's a way to describe someone who has just this amazing integrity, this personal integrity, just a a heart towards God. And we learn here in the very first verse of the book of Job, if you're following on your notes, that Job is a man of high moral character. I mean, Job is a man of high moral character. And I got to tell you, just look at me real quick here. This is so important for us to understand as we get into the rest of Job's story. Job is a man of high moral character. I'll tell you why in a minute. Verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. What does that tell us? This dude was wealthy. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Scholars believe Job lived around the time of Abraham. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. In the beginning... Everything is just as we think it ought to be, right? We have this pious, 
moral, all-around good guy. And God is blessing him accordingly. He's reverent before God. I mean, did you see that? He even offers sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case. You know, just in case they might have sinned. And this is exactly how we think as it should be, isn't it? It's exactly how it should be. Because Job is obedient, he's a man of high moral integrity, God blesses him, of course. But trouble is coming to the land of us. And bad things are going to start happening to a good man. And that's not how it's supposed to work. I love how John Ortberg says, everyone here, though, will spend some time in us. Everybody's going to spend some time in us. Some of you are right now. Some of you have. Job is about to. In verse 6, we get a scene shift, and really the best way I could explain this to you is I want you to imagine chapter 1 as two different stages. There's a lower stage where everything that's going on in Job's life is taking place, but then there's this upper stage in heaven is really, we're going to get a glimpse into heaven. And I just got to tell you, this is one of the most mysterious interesting portions in the entire Bible. We get to glimpse into the throne room of God, and yet the important thing for us to remember right now is that Job, all he knows about is the lower stage, right? For his whole life, all he's going to know about is the lower stage. Verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. How would you like to have those words spoken about you from the mouth of God? But notice verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Friends, in my opinion, verse 9 is really the key to understanding the entire book of Job. Satan contends that the only reason Job has these high moral standards, this man of integrity, the only reason he does that is because of the way God has blessed him. Right? It's a direct result of the blessings God has poured out on his life. Take that away, God, and Job will curse you to your face. If you're falling on your notes, Satan questions Job's motives for his devotion. Now, let me ask you, who is Satan really attacking here? Yeah? Does this remind you of Genesis 3 at all? He's attacking God and this idea, this radical idea that says human beings could love God just for who he is in himself. He doesn't believe that's possible. He believes human beings love God because of what we get from God. Verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And from here, if you've read it, this story turns tragic, heartbreakingly tragic. 
Let me just sum it up because we don't have time for all of it. But in verses 13 through 19, in quick succession, Job loses his livestock, his wealth, his servants, his children, everything. Everything. And we wait. We wait to see how Job is going to respond to all this. And his response is the most inspiring, amazing, incredible thing that has ever been ushered from the lips of a human being. How's that? Verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. We're like, what is that? Well, that was a common way to express grief in this time. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, read verse 21 out loud with me on your notes. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And chapter 1 ends this way. Look at this, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In other words, far from cursing God to his face, Job worships him. Things get worse for Job in chapter 2, believe it or not. He endures tremendous physical pain and suffering along with what I'll just call the suffering of an unsupportive wife. Let me read it. And yet, the end of chapter 2 ends the same way. Look at the the last verse. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. If you've ever read Job, you know the rest of the book, all the way up to chapter 38, basically is recording a conversation that Job has with his friends who are trying unsuccessfully to explain to Job why all this was happening. And then in chapter 38, Job, I mean, just says, I just want an audience with God. I just want an audience with God. In 38, God shows up. And like I said, we don't have time to get into all that, but it's just some incredible stuff. This morning, though, we can glean some things from chapter 1 in and of themselves. And there's really two things I want to focus our attention on this morning. The first is, what can we learn from this man, Job, about how to suffer? And the second thing is, what do we learn about God when it comes to suffering? So, number one, what do we learn from Job? The reason, quite honestly, I chose Job as an unsung hero is because according to the Lord himself, God says he's an unsung hero. He says he suffered well. In fact, if you're following on your notes, we've been redefining who a hero is in this series. And what I'd say we can learn from Job is this. A hero is a person who, by faith, answers God's call to suffer well. Of course, that begs the question, what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean for us to suffer well? I think we all have in our mind what that means. But we can see at least two things in chapter 1 of Job about what it means to suffer well. And the first thing, Job suffered well by responding honestly to his grief. By responding honestly to his grief. As we just saw, I mean, he was just hit. He was just hit with major blows. His wealth, his children, his reputation, his health. How does he respond? He tears his robe. He shaves his head and he falls to the ground in despair. And it's important in all of that for us to remember what verse 22 says. Job's emotional outburst is not condemned, is it? You don't hear God saying, suck it up, Job. Toughen up a little bit. Don't you know I work all things for the good of those who love me? 
doesn't say any of that. The Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin. Listen, suffering is real, and it is painful, and we are not acting more spiritual or more godly when we pretend it isn't. In fact, can I just tell you, this week I had what I can only describe as an epiphany from the Holy Spirit when it comes to this whole idea of grief. I'm sure some of you have had this before and you already know it, but here it is if you're falling on your notes. Our grief is actually an act of worship. Our grief is actually an act of worship. Can I just explain that? When we read verses 20 and, you know, to the end there in English, we read it as if those things were separate things, right? Job tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and then he worshipped. Like he got over it, and then he worshipped. But in the Hebrew, in which this was originally written, this is all part of the same continuous act. In other words, we're not talking about two separate things, grieving and worship. They're all part of the same thing. As he's grieving, it's worship. His life is coming apart at the seams. And he's doing that in worship. Unfortunately, many Christians today are guilty of believing this lie that we need to give the world this impression that because we believe in God, that we're just supposed to be happy in Jesus all the time. So that means when pain strikes, we are called to put on a smile Say, God is good. I'll be quick to say, Job would agree, God is good. And yet he would say it with weeping and wailing. How can that be? I mean, how can our grief be an act of worship? And this is where the epiphany, the aha moment happened to me. The reason that our grief is actually worship is because if you're falling on your notes, it is an acknowledgement that things are not the way they should be. Stick with me here. Isn't at its heart our expression of grief hearkening back to what we think this world should be according to Genesis 1 and 2? I mean, there's something in our heart that longs for it because it's right and it's good. And it's how God created it. And in our grief, we're hearkening back to that going, this isn't right. This isn't how it should be. This isn't the world our God created it to be. And let me also just say, as Christians, it's also an act of worship because we are crying out for the day when it one day will be again. It's a Romans 8 cry, friends. Romans 8, 22 through 23 says this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Do you feel it when you open that newspaper? As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We're groaning, aren't we? It's not how it should be. And so we cry out in grief, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We're under a curse. We're under a curse. And we are longing when we grieve for the day when Jesus Christ will return in victory and make all things new. I'm so glad that Job understood this. 
I'm so glad that he demonstrated. Listen, suffering well does not mean pretending everything is okay, because it's not. We live in the land of us, and it's not okay. Yet, yet, grieving honestly, out of a heart that yearns for Jesus to make all things new, that's suffering well. Second thing we can learn about suffering well from Job is that, and this is important, Job never lost his faith in God's grace. I mean, you got to ask yourself, right, when you read this story, how in the world did this man survive all this calamity? How could he say, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. I mean, what does that mean? It means Job had this incredible understanding, listen, that he came in this world with nothing, and he's going to leave this world with nothing, and everything that he had been given in this world was the direct result from the hand of God and his grace upon him. Yes, his wealth. Yes, his status. And yes, even his children. Job was a steward of the things God had graced him with. And i got to tell you, if that wasn't his attitude, if he believed those things really belonged to himself, what would have been his response to this calamity? It would have been bitterness. Just, just bitterness. He didn't place his value in those things, though. He placed his value in God alone. Friends, we learn from Job that if the foundation of our happiness is our job, if it's our relationships, if it's our wealth, then if those things are ever taken away from us, then the source of our joy will be taken away from us. And we're going into a very dark place. But if our ultimate value in life is God and his grace and my relationship with him, then here's the truth. Sometimes suffering can drive us even closer to him. And really that's what I want to address the rest of our time this morning. It's, it's great to see how Job responded to it. I mean, unsung hero, isn't he? And yet, the question I really I want to ask is, what do we learn about suffering here? And more importantly, what do we learn about God and our suffering? So first, what can we learn about suffering just in general from Job's story? Today in our world, there are two answers to the reason why we suffer, generally speaking. Maybe there are more. Tim Keller calls it the religious answer and the secular answer. And in the book of Job, we discover that neither of them is right and both will lead to a dead end. The religious answer, uh, the religious person answer to suffering, you know, why do we suffer, uh, basically looks like this. A, a moralist is what they would be described as, a moralist, right? Religious, moralist, whatever word you want to use, they would respond to suffering this way. Why is God punishing me? What have I done wrong? Have I not been praying enough? I need to pray more. Is there an unconfessed sin in my life? I need to confess and find it. At its heart, what are those statements saying, friends? If you're falling on your notes, they're saying that if I live rightly, uh, the, the moralist says, if I live rightly, God will bless me. Just will, not just will, like has to. This is how this whole deal works. It's like this tit-for-tat relationship, right? If I live obediently, God will bless me. That's his part. I got my part down. We got this relationship, good. That was exactly Satan's approach in verse 9, isn't it? 
God, you think Job is devoted to you just because he loves you? He's devoted to you because of the things you're doing for him. You scratch his back, he's going to scratch yours, God. You take those things away, I guarantee he'll curse you to your face. He loves you for what you give to him. Do you know who else argued for the moralist response, the moralist reason for Job's suffering? His friends. For 36 of the most long, boring, grueling chapters in the entire Bible, have you read them? My favorite comment about this once is a guy in our church got up and just said, when he read through the Bible in a year, he got to Job. He said, like Job, I was asking when I got to Job, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> they're, they're there for a purpose, though. They're there to help us see that this moralist argument for Job's suffering, which essentially for 36 chapters, his friends say, Job, the reason this is all happening to you is because you must have done something wrong. I mean, it's the only explanation. God didn't like the way you were living, so there you go. If you just confess your sin, then everything will be made right. But what does chapter 1 say again? Let me just remind you. Job was blameless and upright. And in all this, he did not sin against the Lord. Did you know God says it himself in chapter 42? He says, Job didn't sin against me. In fact, what does God say? At the end of chapter 42, he says, you moralist friends, you religious friends, you're the ones that need to ask some confessing. You're the one that need to confess. Friend, look up Jesus' comments in the very beginning of chapter Luke 13, by the way. That's another good place to look. But here's what I just want to say. God is not up in heaven keeping a ledger book saying, uh-oh, the bad just tipped over the good in that person's lifetime to send the pain. That is not the God of the Bible. The secularist answer to the reason why we suffer essentially just comes down to this, if you're on your notes. Our suffering is only by mere chance. We live in a random, meaningless universe, so if you happen to be going through some suffering, it's just bad luck of the draw. Or they would say, God doesn't exist, or if he does, he can't do anything about it, and he doesn't care about it. Perhaps you've heard this argument. I'm going to quote this. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he's not all-powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue and he could stop it, but he won't stop it, then he might be all-powerful, but he is not good. Either way, the good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. So that argument goes. Have you heard it? I mean, let's be honest. It's a pretty formidable argument. It is. However, I guess I would just want to know where does that ultimately lead a person? Man, it just leads to cynicism, nihilism, despair, no hope. And so the reason we gather here on Sunday mornings is because we have a book that we hope can answer some of these questions for us. I mean, if none of those are the right answer, what is? Well, let's ask what the Bible says about this. Why do we suffer? And while there is no way on earth I can answer every single reason why we suffer, we may never even know all the reasons why we suffer. The Bible comes back to one idea over and over and over again, including here in Job chapter 1. It's what God says about suffering. If you're falling on your notes, God says, I allow suffering to refine your trust in me. To refine your trust in me. It's all over the Bible. 
Let's look at a few verses here. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Romans 5, Paul agrees with James and says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And Peter, in this remarkable image, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says these words. Would you read them out loud with me on your notes there? He says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. I mean, that's a powerful picture, isn't it? Suffering is entering into the furnace. It is. But the result is is sometimes it refines us even to become pure, like gold or silver. Now listen, in the early church, if you read the New Testament, would you agree they went through some major refining? You want to talk about some suffering? Read chapter 11 of Hebrews sometime. And yet, we just read two passages, and they're all over the place. They rejoiced. I ain't there yet. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not rejoicing over suffering. And yet, why could they rejoice that God, as it says, would count them worthy to suffer for the name? Why could they do that? Because they believed and trusted that just as Jesus went to the furnace, when they went to the furnace, they would come out refined more and more into his image. You see, just like Job, I think when Satan looks at people who say, I love God, his cynical response is, yeah, you love him when he's blessing you. You don't love him just for himself. And guess what? Sometimes the only way we're going to learn if we truly love God for who he is just in himself is through the furnace of suffering. Would you agree that suffering exposes us for who we are more than anything else? Now listen, compared to most of you in this room, the amount of suffering I've gone through in my life is like this. Like a drop in a bucket. And yet you can read on the back of the bulletin, my whole life I've had a kidney disease that I've had to deal with. And you better believe that I have asked the why question a lot. You better believe there are good days and there are bad days. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt from my experience that because I've had this disease, God has used that to bring me closer to him in ways that he would never have been able to otherwise. And I'm learning to be able to say like Job did, naked, I came from my mother's womb. I had nothing, Lord. And I'm going to leave this world with nothing. You've given me so many amazing things. And you've taken away some. This isn't the body you, did, you intended me to have from the beginning of creation. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I just have to add this. Even though sometimes we understand that God will use suffering to refine us in ways like that, I gotta just say, sometimes we will never know the reason why. I mean, it's not the only reason. And we will never, ever learn the reason why. Perhaps not until we stand before God. 
I've had people say to me, I could handle this suffering if God would just tell me exactly why. You know, if I just knew five years from now, if I could just look back on that and say, oh, now I all understand. I mean, I've said that. And yet, listen to what Tim Keller, I'm quoting him again, says about a statement like that in relation to the refining nature of suffering. At its heart, wanting the why question answered still means you'd be serving God for the things you're going to get. The only way you can be sure you are serving God for Him alone rather than for what you're getting out of it is to be in a position when you're getting nothing out of it. That's why we can't know the reason for our suffering sometimes. We will never become the kind of person God wants to make us if we did. You've got to be willing to let God put you through the fire. It's the only way to become a person who loves God for no other reason than that He is God. That is hard. Interesting. Speaking of that, have you ever read the book of Job? You know, when God finally does show up, does he answer the why question for Job? Well, you see, Job, there's two stages, and you were down here, and does he do that? Or let me explain to you, no. All he does is ask Job some questions. Job never discovers the answer to why God allowed all this suffering in his life, and yet he discovered something far more important, that this God is all-powerful, and yet he is also good. And if you read the beginning of chapter 42, you get to see Job's response to that. Let's just say he is humbled, and he has come out of the test refined as if. The mystery of suffering that we are asked to embrace today is if you're following, in all things, God is sovereign. We sang about that. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N and has a purpose. In all things, God is sovereign and has a purpose. To say that God is sovereign, what does that mean? It just means he is in complete control of everything. Nothing is happening by chance, including anything in your life. And friends, Let me just solve the mystery of sovereignty for you in the next 20 seconds. I can't. I don't understand it. Theologians have debated it for centuries. Why does God allow it? I don't know. Why didn't he stop it? I don't know. But what we do know about God in suffering and his sovereignty from the book of Job and other places is that three things are clear. Number one, if you're following, God hates the suffering in this world. Hates, not even a strong enough word. God hates the suffering in this world. It was Satan's idea for Job to suffer. God didn't come up with the idea, nor is God actually the one generating the suffering. Satan does it. That's an important fact. When God made the world... He did not make it with suffering and disaster and disease or any of those things. That's not the world God made. It wasn't this kind of world that we're living in now. It wasn't a place of death. However, as we all know, because we live in the land of us, those things are in this world now. They are in this world because of the forces of darkness that were unleashed The moment you and I turned our back on God, at that moment, things began to unravel and our world has fallen under a curse. 
So number one, God hates suffering. But number two, and here's the mystery, God is in absolute control of our suffering. That's sovereign. He hates it, but he's in absolute control of it. Listen, people have argued we have Satan and God as two opposing forces here. Is that what's going on on the upper stage? No. God is in absolute control the entire time, isn't he? And yet, he permits it. He allows evil to take place in Job's life. Why? I don't know all the reasons why. Although one reason we know why specifically in Job's life is because what was the very reason Satan wanted to afflict Job with all this? What was the reason? He wanted to show Job was a fraud, right? That this whole love thing you got going with human beings, God, that's fake. And what was the end result? Who's the fraud? Who's the liar that he really is? Job came out like, oh man. Perhaps that's why God allowed some of these things. It just, it still doesn't explain everything to me, but Satan is proven false. God hates evil, but he permits it. The moralist says you need more faith. The secularist says it's all random. The Bible says wrong. Here's what I'm asking you to believe. As God, I am sovereign. I'm in total control. And I'm asking you to trust me with that. Can you trust me with that? I don't know. How how can I trust that you're good still? How can I trust that this sovereign, all-powerful God really loves me and he really does have a purpose even for my suffering? How can we trust that? All we need to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. How can we trust that this God is good? We look to the cross of Jesus Christ where God in human form entered into unimaginably more suffering than you and I will ever enter into. All because of love. All because of love. He's not some all-powerful God who doesn't care about us. If there's one thing we learn from the cross, it maybe doesn't tell us every reason why we suffer, but it tells us why we don't. We don't suffer because God is indifferent or he doesn't care. Amen? If you're falling on your notes, here is the mystery of all mysteries. God entered into our suffering because of his love. He entered into it. What, what do we have on the cross? God on the cross. God of the universe on the cross. And you know that only Christianity in all of the world religions makes such a ridiculous claim as that. It's why Paul calls it foolishness to those who don't believe God on the cross. It's a stumbling block. The God of the universe stepping down into unimaginable pain. Why? Because of love. Friends, are you suffering from physical pain and disease right now? I bet you many of you are. Here's what I would say. Look to the cross and what do we see? We see the spotless Lamb of God unjustly beaten and broken and bloodied for us. 
Are you suffering from the pain of losing a loved one? I mean, who of us aren't? Here's what I'd say. Look to the cross and what do you see? You see a father whose heart is broken as his one and only son is swallowed up in death. Are you asking the why me question? Why God? Look to the cross and what do you see? The Savior of the world saying, why have you forsaken me? Look to the cross in our suffering and what do we see? We see love. You know, we may never get the why, answer, why question answered in our lives, but in this case, we get it answered. Why would Jesus go to the cross? If you're falling on your notes, why did Jesus suffer? Here's what I want you to write down. He suffered because of me. You, put your name there. I'll ask you again now. Say it like you believe it. Why did Jesus suffer? He suffered because of The author of Hebrews says this. Let's read these words out loud together. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, what is the joy that was set before Him that He would do that? Say it again. Me! It's the one thing in the universe he didn't have. I'll ask it again. Let's try that again. What is the joy that allowed Jesus to endure the cross? Say it. Friends, we live in the land of us. We are all going to suffer. Some of us are suffering right now. We're hurting deeply. Why? I don't know why. How long will it last? I don't know the answer to that. Does our response matter more than we could possibly imagine? Can I trust God in it? Yes, yes, and a thousand times yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to trust you with the kind of faith that Job had. Help us to believe that you use suffering to refine our faith and Not only that, but just like you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that furnace thousands of years ago, that you are with us in our furnaces today. And may we come out like gold. Together as the body of Christ, we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Well, I know it's tempting to check out. You got lunch plans and all those sort of things, but as we already mentioned, we have intentionally set aside the next 14 minutes of this service to spend some time just in worship. And whether that means for you, remain seated, maybe just praying, you want to sing along, you want to stand, you want to come down to these steps and pray, all of those things are legal and there are options for you, all right?